Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, welcome once again to the podcast. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking with Ashley Hansen Greck. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Ashley is the global head of sales at Square, and they are a commerce platform. I'm sure you probably swiped a credit card uh, today when you're buying your coffee or lunch, as I did at a Square terminal. We are going to talk about career progression for reps and their teams. And Ashley and I discovered that we went to one of the same schools. So that will be one of our topics of conversation that I think is relevant to salespeople and sales leaders. Uh, Before we do that, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everyone, which is what is your favorite sales or leadership or fiction book of all time that might relate to salespeople and why? My favorite sort of recent book that I think applies to sales, but it isn't a sales book, is The Obstacle is the Way. It doesn't say anything that we haven't already heard, either from a tough, loving friend or parent or a partner, but it just really highlights that when we choose things, we choose things that are difficult along with it. And it's those difficult moments that we have a choice with which to make it work for us and teach us something or not. And I just really loved hearing stories of like Michael Jordan. He, he loves to fail because he says that it teaches him something. It makes him better every time. And so I feel like as salespeople, we maybe not fail, but we get hung up on all the time and just learning from every call you make and controlling the controllables like crazy. That message felt very true to me. So this was a book that I I was both reading on paper and I would listen to on Audible when I was on hikes or walks and it just followed me around in that way. And it's really been in my mind ever since. I have not read that one. It is on my list because it is one of the leadership bestsellers right now. I'm with you on the obstacles thing, by the way. You know, if I think about my own career trajectory, and this will help us transition a little bit into career, Mm -hmm. it was like the things that I had the hardest time on when I was younger are the things that I then, you know, charged at that windmill and have become fundamental to who I am. So I can think of three specific things. One is public speaking, you know, being a super social introverted person. I was just filled with ums and ahs and didn't speak confidently. I lacked, you know, I guess what would be called executive presence on many dimensions, including speaking. And, you know, I, I had to charge at that windmill for 10 years until I gained a degree of proficiency. Another one was statistics. I was terrified of stats and now I teach stats. (laughs) My third one was marketing. My worst class in business school was marketing and, you know, I eventually became a CMO. So it's kind of, those are my obstacles. When I'm presented with an obstacle, there's a moment there where I like feel the feelings and I'm referring back to the book now and actually something that my parents taught me, like your feelings are not the thing. It's just how you feel about that thing. It makes me sometimes a tougher parent than I'd like to be because it's like, that's just a feeling. It's going to be okay. Like, um, you know, getting past tough times. But when there's an obstacle in my way, I inevitably feel it for a moment. And I have fear, doubt, the same thing as everyone else. But I do allow myself to feel it. And then I find ways to get past it. And so to your comment about like marketing and statistics and public speaking, like it's okay to acknowledge that those things are scary. But that shouldn't stop you from getting around it or going after it or going through it for that matter. 
Well, I brought up that one of my demons, I guess, was my marketing and marketing 101, whatever it was called in, in business school. And this is where we discovered that you and I both went to Chicago Booth. Mm-hmm. This ties us to the career progression. I am often asked by salespeople, especially younger salespeople, should I go to business school? Do I need an MBA to be more if they want to move into sales leadership? They ask if they need an MBA to, to do that. Well, I'd love to just start our conversation on the career progression track there. I'm going to turn that around and ask you the first question there then. Like when people ask you whether or not they should get their MBAs, particularly salespeople and sales leaders, what do you tell them? One is I say that for most people, the main reason to go to business school is to change careers. When I went, it was a lot of consultants who wanted to become bankers and a lot of bankers who wanted to become consultants. Mm -hmm. And I think nowadays, from what I understand, there are a lot of people who want to become entrepreneurs But the funny thing is, is I think if you want to become an entrepreneur, you should not go to business school. You should just start the damn company because you're going to learn more doing that. And you're going to have incredible mentors who can help guide you in that. And, you know, from a financial perspective, it also probably doesn't make sense. What I think a lot of the people who go and study entrepreneurship in business schools end up doing is they end up joining large tech companies. You know, they'll join Square or, uh, you know, they will join you know, whatever Google or whatever the company happens to be. So that that's my first part of the story is like a career switch. Do I think you need to have an MBA to be in sales leadership? No, I don't. I don't think so. I do cherish the MBA for me because I learned to think differently, truly learned to think differently with it. So that for me, that investment was a good investment. I have a very similar thought around it. I turned the question around because I feel like often my My answer is probably deeply unsatisfying to people. I really appreciated my time there, but mind you, I got an MBA and then I graduated right at the heart of the financial crisis. So that was really shitty. So it it was a good, you know, wake up call as to like, what is my real value? Like, does that make me any more valuable than, than another person who is looking for a job on the street? I was lucky enough to have a job afterwards, but many of my classmates didn't. So that was a, a rude awakening for, you know, your value on the market and how you create value. You don't, it doesn't just like show up in an inbox or with a piece of paper. I also ask people, what, what would they like to do? And I agree that an MBA is a really excellent way to change a career path and sort of hit the reset button in a way that's meaningful and that's accretive to your future. But a lot of people that I speak with, they're doing the things that they want to do. And also, how would getting an MBA sort of change that? Or are they already doing things that post-grads, post-MBA grads want to do? That sort of comes up from time to time, particularly from like sales ops and and other sort of analytics-based jobs. I'm like, you're already working on some of the coolest stuff around what do you think will be different once you go get your MBA? But it's personal. I can only share my perspective and not how it applies to them. But every real lesson I learned was on the job. Now, there are from time to time that I I refer back to some of those case studies that I think are really interesting. But every tough lesson that I think makes me better at what I do today is learned here in the real world. When I um, got to university, just, just college, I went to the University of Chicago and one of the requirements at the U of C is that every graduate has to know how to swim. And so if you didn't pass the test, then you would take a swim class. And if you did pass the the swim test, then it, it was fine. You could sort of go about your business. And before anyone gets in the water, we always ask them, do you know how to swim? And it sort of made me chuckle from time to time because every year there'd be at least one person that was like, 
I don't really know how to swim, but I read a book on it. <laughs> and you're like, please don't get in the water. <laughs> like, <laughs> because, you know, swimming is like management. Like you can read all about it, but eventually you're going to have to get in the water. So that's, that's my thought around, uh, around MBAs. It's like, I personally, it's hard to say whether or not I think it's a good idea because it's a false statement. I already have my MBA and from a wonderful school at that. But I'm with you as well. It really helped shape the way I think and how I seek divergent perspectives and how I find information and whatnot. So perhaps it is more valuable than I give it credit for. But I think it's highly personal. Yeah, I agree. I I think it is personal. And um, there are precious few actual case studies or projects or anything that 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 I apply. And instead all the lessons learned in, you know, my 25 years of working are the ones that those are the right. Those are the ones where I say, okay, we're not going to make that mistake again. Just curious. Do you have a favorite class that you remember there? I do. I had two. One was an HR class and it made me realize that a topic that I thought was a yawn actually had incredible analytical depth. And in the subsequent years, You know, Laszlo Bach, who was the head of HR at Google for a long time, really, you know, was one of the people who ushered in the wave of analytics to HR. And there were elements of that in the class that I had that I had taken. I never thought about HR before that as as something that, you know, had that analytical beauty to it. My other favorite class was on the opposite end of the spectrum, which is organizational behavior that I had never really thought about. That one focused a lot on on how do you build networks and leverage networks of first degree and second degree connections and that sort of thing. So that was my, my other favorite. How about for you? Did you have a favorite class? I remember taking organizational behavior and I remember really enjoying it, but I don't know why. I think it's just, there are a lot of classes like that, that open your eyes to thinking about things in a new way. One class that fits that description, I wouldn't have put it as my favorite, but it was on pricing and just the rigor in which good companies go through on how to set price. And I never thought about it. Never. It also made me realize that I probably wouldn't go into like product development one day because in addition to designing the product, there's a whole discipline at the end of it that's like, what should we price this at and why? And all the the discipline that goes into calculating something like that. My favorite class was taught by Tanya Menon and it was called Power and Influence. The reason why I thought that class was so interesting was that as a young professional working in banking at the time, most often the only woman on my team and the fact that the class was taught by a woman and it was the study of group leaders and CEOs and political leaders and just seeing how the patterns of sort of influence and behavior, how it shows up in different individuals as effective or not. Um, And it was just so so instrumental at that time, opening my eyes to an entire category of discipline that I hadn't even considered before. But I'll never forget the class. And I also remember another thing is at the end of the class, she said that she hated wearing heels, but she only taught in heels. Why was that? There's something about like the change of presence and perception that matters, particularly as she had described Um, for a female professor, it stood out as something that she was very intentional about. And that's why I thought it was so interesting. Yeah, there's a great TED Talk and book by Harvard professor Amy Cuddy. Oh, yeah. Power posturing. Yeah, power posturing. Exactly. You want to explain what it is? She talks about the 
the study of sort of almost like faking it until you make it, like the power of standing up straight and taking a stance of power and what that does in reverse. So how does it create the confidence that you're looking for? And how does it create and increase testosterone levels and increase your physiological response? Um, and I thought that was so fascinating. And, you know, say what you want about it. I think it's been a sort of hotly contested topic after she gave that TED Talk. But there is something to be said about like standing up a little bit straighter and holding your head higher when when you're feeling a little nervous. In fact, in my first sales job, one of my first managers at the time it was in Manhattan. And he told me that when I called, I should stand facing out to the city at the window. By the end of my sort of first sales job, that that very first role with that manager, I was making calls and I was sort of pointing out the window and I was like, let me, I I can't wait to tell you about this. And I sort of point um, as if I were with them in the room. And it really did make me a little bit more confident. I don't know what it is. So maybe Amy Cuddy is really onto something. So you start out in, in marketing, then you did the career switcheroo mm-hmm. into banking and spent 12 years at a you know prestigious Wall Street bank and then went into sales strategy and then ultimately head of sales. And the reason I, I asked this is um, I was slacking with a coworker of mine and I had sat in on her pipeline review meeting with her team and she was asking me for feedback. And I, I said, look, before I give you feedback, you just have to know I'm a fraud because I never carried a bag. And I was never a first line sales manager. Like I was a CRO, but I was never a first line sales manager for you also. I mean, did you, did you feel like in your progression, I guess at JP Morgan, did you ever feel like a salesperson or a sales manager or or you also kind of went into it from the strategy angle? I was in a strategy role when the financial crisis hit. I remember eating dinner and getting the news that, that we were going to buy Bear Stearns and that Deutsche Bank was going under and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there is also considered a cost center role. Yes, it's extremely prestigious because you get to sort of write strategy for for the company and you get to do big projects, but it is after all a cost center. And so I, I actually got my first sales job at that time. I was terrified all the time and, and working on a lot of projects that would ultimately relate to efficiency gains and operational efficiencies, which is sort of euphemistic for contraction also. Um, so I, I got my first sales job. Someone was kind enough to give me my first quota as opposed to going back into like starting at an ADR or a BDR role. So I did get to do that. And it was hard. It was the best education I ever got because it was selling during the financial crisis. Banks were persona non grata. Everyone had something terrible to say and were hurt and, and pissed and just wanted to be heard, actually. So it was a good wake up call, extremely humbling that my MBA was really not worth anything at that time because it was time to listen. And it was just time to be a, like a people problem solver, which is basically what sales is, is just solving, like listening to their pain and solving problems as a result of it. So I did progress in that path. I was an IC for a few years, uh, became a sales manager. That was for small businesses. And then I went into a more uh, enterprise-related role prior to coming to Square. So that's a short way of lengthening a 12-year journey at, at the bank. But it was the best sales education ever. And it's something I think about a lot these days. Like, you know, you asked about whether or not salespeople or sales leaders should get MBAs. And I mean, I can just say, like, nothing can prepare you completely for for an economic contraction like that. And so it's actually, that's very much on my mind these days. Like, how do I prepare my team for what will inevitably really be really tough conversations? 
with small businesses and medium-sized businesses and even large businesses that are failing. It's super contextually relevant because the chatter in the newsosphere, I'm sure there's a better word for it, (laughs) interweb, uh, in August was very much this like chatter around potential recession. And it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Is if everyone talks about that, that people start to tighten their, you know, pocketbooks a little bit in advance, both on the consumer side and on the business side. So like, as you think about your time during the financial crisis, like what are the preparations that you need to make? What are the conversations that you had? If you take it back down to like the absolute human level, like forget the product that you're selling, you can actually reduce like real success in selling during difficult times to listening. I know when when we do sales training, we talk a lot about like, you should be listening more than speaking in terms of total talk time and whatnot. But like, those things are real. I know that that those are best practices today, but those will save you in times of real difficulty. And that will save you immensely when your customer is putting all their fear and anxiety about their jobs and their businesses and their livelihood into a discussion about price. We say it all the time, like it's really not about price, but in the moment, you're going to have to find a better way to get to what's really scaring them. So listening is so important in times of, of true financial crisis. And then the other piece, honestly, is storytelling and bringing people along with you. I was having a chat yesterday with someone about the power of sort of corporate storytelling. But the, the truth is, when we're talking about hiring in the Bay Area and what makes you know reps successful and in what industries. And I did say that in the industry that we're in, which feels like financial services, but really is about commerce and running a business, The people that do the best on our team are storytellers, people that can really share the vision of what it feels like to use a product, not like what the buttons are and what they do and what then what the price is, but like, what is your business experience in utilizing a product that will unify systems that are disparate today? So I do think that being able to convey stories is super important. What do you look for in order to find those people who are either A, storytellers, or B, have had the stories from their own personal experiences before they join the company? It differs a little bit from from role to role. The context of which that conversation came up was around uh, sort of strategic or enterprise teams, like how well do people do in interviews and, and how can you tell that they're going to be good at selling your product? And I was just saying that, you know, sometimes it's really nice to hear from people that work in industries where you you sell something that enables something else. For example, analytics or AI or anything that's like the experience is different for every business that you talk to, every customer you talk to. So you have to get good at like imagining it for them and sort of painting a picture for them because with all great tools, it is what you make of it. There is like face value what the product is and you can use it in this way and it does this and that and not these other things, right? But the best experiences that we have for something that we buy or whatever it is, it's what you make of it. And so I think, you know, storytelling is really important and it helps when people come from an industry that, that have a little bit of uh, storytelling experience and practice there at the SMB level, we hire people, you know, one or two years out of school, sometimes right out of school. So we try to teach that as much as possible. And that's, that's tough. When we do hire from the outside into AE roles and whatnot, we like to keep it as diverse as possible. You know, we don't exclusively source from other Silicon Valley firms. Um, I just think that's that's a real miss when you don't have diversity in your salesperson pool. 
you know, we have people coming from uh, medical device sales and, you know, from the food and beverage space and from other technology companies, from payments. And that's, that's really neat to see them learning from each other. So that, that's a different type of storytelling, but only because of the diversity of experiences. There are lots of frameworks for storytelling. I don't know if you guys uh, subscribe to a particular one. We use the challenger sale right now. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, not so much sales training, although that's an interesting thread of conversation as well. But I'm thinking about like, I mean, all stories ultimately can be deconstructed in in some ways in a hero's journey, right? But a a three-act story structure. I know that some places, I was just talking to uh, Christina McMillan, who's an amazing analyst over at a research firm called Topo, and they prescribe and teach to their folks problem solution impact or situation complication resolution, or there's the Pixar pitch do you like go to that level of granularity in, in storytelling training? No, but that sounds great. I absolutely feel you on that. There, there are people that they're just so talented at bringing you along through a story that even they know, right? They know their own business. But meanwhile, as a salesperson, you're sort of telling them a story about their business. Yeah. One of my favorite storytelling tips, this is very applicable to business storytelling, everything that you share or, or say should resolve the issue at hand, but then also prompt a question. And then that question is addressed by the next thing, right? Like you're taking control of the story. You're premeditating what question, whatever you say is going to prompt. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Actually, that leads me back like full circle to an earlier question you asked me on like whether or not sales leaders should get MBAs. And as always, my answer is like, it's up to you, whatever, you know, whatever works well for you as, as an individual and what you want to improve. But there is something about over time, a sales leader should be able to like, think of the problem that they're solving at hand or the question that they're answering at hand, and then extrapolate it to think forward on like, how does this impact this other problem that I have and the next problem or looking around corners that I am not looking around today. And so like, there's something about like that string of problem solving that is so necessary. And I I think successful leaders continuing to move up and and develop in their careers. If people don't have time or can't afford an MBA, what's a great way for them to learn how to do that? There's a few things, right? If you're talking about an actual resource, like something that I can buy or read or whatever, I recommend every manager, sales manager or not. Um, buy a subscription to Harvard Manage Mentor. It's a collection of something like 50 or so topics, including, you know, accounting and financial statements analysis, virtual teams. It's really basic, but it's hundreds of hours of learning. It lays a good foundation because I think one thing that excellent companies do, they're always developing their managers and leaders. My team here has heard me say it, but one of my great fears is that there's the Peter principle, which is the idea that you promote people into incompetence. Like you're not helping them reach a higher level and increase their skills to match that level such that if, as you continue to promote said individuals, they reach a point where they're no longer effective at their jobs. And that's just not fair to them. They trust you. And if you're not doing that as their leader, like that's just... I don't know. That's an embarrassment. I think the Harvard Managed Mentor is, is a great recommendation. For a book recommendation, I would recommend Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. Helps you sort of think about problem solving and also um, Switch, which is, I think, another Heath Brothers book, actually. That's, uh, that's, that's a good one. And then, yeah, to your point about just giving people at-bats inside companies, right? So I presume you guys 
will rotate people into different jobs to to give them like a variety of at bats. Yes, and also enough exposure to strategic projects that teaches problem solving over direct experience over a specific thing. Brilliant. Well, I love that you brought it full circle to the MBA piece for the managers as well. So I think we hopefully gave people food for thought. They all need to make their own decisions, getting to your point earlier about whether it's right for them. So thank you for your wisdom today. Um, If people do want to learn more about you, get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? LinkedIn is absolutely the best way. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.